please note that today's topic could find elements that some listeners could find disturbing, so listener caution is advised. In addition to the usual warning, I need to say that due to the nature of today's case, I will be describing the crime in more detail than normal. So if this bothers you, please give yourself a break this week and come back in two weeks' time. Now, when I started to when I started to prepare for an episode, I always Google the victim's name with the word podcast after it, and this helps me decide if I should do an episode or not. Because if it's been done to death, I don't see the point of it. And when I did for this episode, I found one other pod had covered it, and that pod was the Lady Justice True Crime Podcast, hosted by the lovely Chantel, who I had the pleasure of meeting at CrimeCon a few weeks ago. Now, I only sort of listened to Chantel's pod a few a few weeks ago myself. And um, and I haven't got to that episode yet, so I am working my way backwards. So when I get to it, uh, I will get to it, but I do suggest if you don't listen to her anyway, go give her a subscribe and listen, and I'd be interested to know your views on our different styles and what we can do as a pod to get to Chantel's level. Have you, have you heard her pod yet, Rachel? I haven't, no, but um, I was just thinking what grand name um lady justice like that's that's pretty uh pretty smart and i think what i'll do after today's episode is i'll go and listen to that one and uh, and then give her a follow because I, I like to fully indulge yes. in a pod so um so yeah once i've listened to one episode uh, that's me hooked uh, as you'll be well aware yeah I, I accidentally um i accidentally lied to her when i met her at crime con <laughs> and I felt, re- I felt really guilty afterwards because I thought she was somebody else. So I went up to her and I said, um, oh, like, I love your, I love your pod. And she was like, what's your favorite episode? And my mind went blank. Yes. And I was thinking, why can't I remember like, any of these episodes? And I said, well, it's okay. I'll, I'll grab my phone and it will refresh me. So I got my phone out and I realized, like, I haven't got her on my list. And I'm thinking, that's pretty weird. I thought maybe it's because I listened to her because some... Uh, pods I listen to on Spotify through my Xbox. I thought oh, maybe yes. that's why. And that evening when I was in my hotel room, I realized that I actually know I thought she was somebody else, so I hadn't ever listened to a pod. So I made a point of listening to the pod and apologizing to the next day because I thought it's really terrible just to look really stupid. Like, yeah, I love your pod, but I don't know anything about it. So, um, I mean, I mean, you say that. I'm sure so many people do it, but I think as well, it could have gone so much worse. She could have said, oh, what's your favourite episode? And you could have said, oh, that that one where they gagged and banned like 40 different people and there was a mass like execution. And she'd have been like, what the hell is he talking about? So I definitely think that you played it cool at the time when you were like, oh, I don't actually know what podcast is my favourite of yours. Yeah, it's but but I did listen to it and actually it is on my rotation now. It's, it's quite good, so I do recommend it. But people hate long introductions, so we're almost there. So we can be found on all the usual social media platforms. So if you want to come and interact with us, we're at Pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's at S C E N E P O D, or you can find us on Facebook by searching for Picture the Scene Podcast. Now, if you're listening to this after the last episode, I do apologize for the sound quality. All we know, I had a bit of a nightmare that day with recording in general, Um, but today I've actually selected the right microphone, so it will be much better. And if not, we know 
it's all Rachel's fault. I assume you're okay with that, Rach? I accept no liability for this. I'm not technology-minded whatsoever, so if you put me in, in charge of this, there'd be, there wouldn't be a pod, put it that way. So anyway, I've not said hello to you, Rach. How are you doing today? Are you ready for some more true crime? I am, and I'm looking forward to today's case, a bit of a different one, so uh, excited for you to get started. Great, so let's get into it. If it's safe for you to do so, I'd like all of you listening to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. It's early in the month in February 1991 in the county of Lynchia, which is in North Wales. Specifically, we're in Higher Kinnerton, which is a small town in Wales, but on a Welsh-English border. And it's about 10 miles north of the Welsh town of Wrexham and about 8 miles southwest of the English small city of Chester. And to give you an idea of how close to the border it is, it is a mile away from its sister town of Lower Kinnerton, which is actually in England. So the temperature at this time of the year in North Wales is usually ranges between 35 to 47 degrees Fahrenheit or around 2 to 8 degrees Celsius. So that's pretty cold. However, in 1991, it was between 25 to 33 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 40 just over freezing at zero degrees Celsius. So throw on top of that wind that was getting up to 20 miles an hour. And if you are brave enough to go outside in this weather, you need several layers plus anything, anything woolly that you could find to put on. In moments, in the moments the wind wasn't taking your breath away, you'd most definitely be able to see your breath. So, can you picture the scene? When I was a kid, I'd love times like this. I'd pretend I was smoking, I'd smoke an imagined cigarette, or if I was lucky, one of those chocolate ones. I used my breath as, a, as smoke as I exhaled. Uh, did you used to do that, Rachel? Or am I just showing my age? Or do you still you do it? <laughs> I don't still do it, thank you. But I used to, and I remember my friend saying to me, if you pretend smoke, you'll smoke in real life. So I stopped. <laughs> That's a good friend. Now, but I used to hate the paper though. And I still don't know to this day if you were supposed to eat it or not, but I used to hate that paper. <laughs> but anyway, um, when you live in a small town, especially in the UK, the community is quite close-knit and Higher Kinnerton was no different. On the 21st of February, 1991, Concerned neighbours of 26-year-old Arminda Ventura Perry contacted the police because they were concerned due to the fact that they had not seen Arminda for a few weeks, which was quite unusual for her. Now, Arminda was 26 years old. She was soon to be 27. She had been living in High Kinnington for almost seven years after having moved to the small town in North Wales from the Philippines, uh, from Manila to be exact. Now, I know we covered the case of Justin Valdez back in episode two, who was also a Filipina who moved to Ireland at 20 years old to be with her family, but Arminda's situation was very different. So just as an aside, um, I didn't pick this case because she was from the Philippines. I did originally thought she was Welsh until I started looking into it. So it is a little bit of a coincidence. Um, Rachel asked me if I had a a weird fetish and I don't have a weird fetish so uh, not that not that I admit anyway so then just out of curiosity how did you find the case were you just how did, how did I find the case I found the case because I was going to do I was researching for a different case 
um, which I still may do one on, on the Gay Slayer. And um, this came up in one of the Google searches. And I thought, that's, that's really interesting. And I thought she was English or Welsh from the UK um, because our Perry is quite a British name. But mm-hmm. when I looked into it, I realized that she was from the Philippines. But yeah, it was purely by accident. But I picked this because I thought it was super interesting. Uh, so, uh, where am I? So, so I want to ask you the question, Rachel. How... How do you think a situation is different? How did a 20-year-old, which is how old she was at the time when she moved to Wales, move from one of the most popular cities in the world and end up in a tiny Welsh border town that only had a population of 1,573 in 1991 when the census was taken that year? Well, that's why I asked you how on earth you chose the case because I can't imagine, although it would have been popular in the village, in, in Wales um, and, and obviously news would have spread quite quickly I can't imagine it would have made like national news and certainly with it being way back in 91 as well it um, it, it just feels a little bit like localised but on your point about why nurse she came from Manila um, I mean it blows my mind where I'm from I'm from a, a small island and when people come here I always say the hell brought you here like especially if they're from a big city because I just I just don't get it um why you'd give up the bright lights of a big city for a, a small local village in the north of Wales I get you no actually it did make um national headlines at the time oh did it um although I don't want to give away why but if you keep listening listeners mm-hmm. you'll find out why it's really interesting um I'd, but I'd have been about six at the time so I'm not going to knock myself for not uh reading the local news right I'm, I'm disappointed still <laughs> uh so I'm not I don't want to leave you hanging for a moment there as to why or how she got to the UK uh 1984 it was not a good time to live in the Philippines if you were not rich it had only officially came out of several years worth of martial law three years earlier but in reality most of the martial law rules were still in place with the de facto leader Ferdinand Marcos still in place so life was hard there was no social health care no social welfare there was a lack of jobs poverty was common and it still is actually over there but poverty was even worse back then and people did what they had to so they could survive and if they had one so they could support their families so there's no surprise that she wanted to move out but why we'll find out in a moment but before we do i want to introduce you to john perry now back in 1984 john perry was a 52 year old welshman now john wasn't rich in relation to his peers Um, he lived a modest life and he worked in a factory now john He'd just come out of a rather messy and somewhat horrible divorce. So he decided he needed a holiday. And rather randomly, he decided to go to the Philippines for his holiday. Now, in 1984, the Philippines wasn't really an international holiday destination. He had a few American military bases. So it was popular with certain sections of American men. And it also attracted people, mainly men, from Australia and Germany. But generally speaking... They only went there for one reason. Now, can you guess what that reason is, Rachel? 
I'm going to guess it wasn't for the sightseeing. No, it was one type of sightseeing, but you're right, it wasn't for the sightseeing. <laughs> so in the description of what he went for is known to the people partaking it as mongering. Now, they call themselves mongers. What a name to call yourself, but they do. <laughs> uh, it's not something, and it's not something they're ashamed of. A monger is basically a sex tourist. Uh, they're not always, because I've seen a few female ones when I lived over there, but they're usually male, and on the, they're usually on the older side, and their favourite destinations are various countries in Southeast Asia, such as Cambodia, Thailand, the Philippines, uh, and similar countries. Basically countries where it's got a large population of people under the poverty line, so they can easily persuade women to sleep with them. Now, a tourist would generally pick a holiday for what they want to do. For example, uh, my wife and I like history and things like that. And tomorrow we're actually flying off to London for a few days and hiring our list is various museums, such as the British Museum and the Tate Modern. Now, would you say the same for you, Rach? When you're picking somewhere to go, you choose a place on what you want to do, even if it is just sunbathing? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you narrow down what you want the holiday for and then that helps you select your destination. Exactly. And this is why a monger will pick a country like the Philippines. There are lots of sex workers. They're cheap oh, and they're usually very submissive. And, and, and so is it just widely acknowledged that an individual would just take a holiday out there and, and, and go and expect that, like, I don't know, it's, it yeah. feels very seedy, but obviously... It is very, it is very seedy. Well, you know, I lived there for a few years, and yeah. actually it was quite common to see. You could spot them a mile off because there was usually no younger than 50, but usually quite a lot older. Then they were either American, Australian, or German, and... And they'd be on their own? They'd be, no, no, they wouldn't be on their own because they'd usually have what looked like a 17, 18-year-old Filipino girl on their arm. So, oh, yeah, but they go there yeah. on their own. Yeah, right? they go there on their own and they basically, yeah, they go there on their own to do one thing and one thing See, alone. Even like, I, I, I'm a typical overthinker, but even getting on the aeroplane, I'd be like, oh, my God, people know what I'm going to do. Like, you know... And, and there'd be, like, other people like you, and you'd be like, oh, my God, these all these people, are, you know, we're all going to be out there doing the same thing. It just it feels wrong. It feels like somebody would come along and say, what you're about to do is wrong, so don't. Because do because you've got a conscience. When when I was about to move over to the Philippines, obviously you, you Google, don't you, and you try and find what happens and, um, and what you do as an expert. Yeah. And I came across several forums which I realized were forums just for men like this. And they used to share photos, stories, and and they actually used to take pleasure in talking about how much they degraded the women. So, um, so yeah, you, you'd think they'd feel shame, a normal person would. And if you're listening to this and you don't like it, because you're one of them, feel free to log off. But, um, but yeah, yeah. These, people, these people have no shame whatsoever. So, um, I know it's not very nice, but it's true. So John Perry, he picked a holiday to the Philippines and he picked Manila. And in particular, he picked an area called Malate, which has lots of bars. Now John had decided to go for three weeks and he found himself a bar and quickly found what he'd refer to as a bar girl. Now in some places to get the services of a bar girl, you have to pay a bar fine, which is a fee to the bar that they work in. 
and then you also then pay the girl per night that you're with them. Now, I don't know what John did, obviously, but he most likely would have paid a bar fine to, to have the girl that he wanted, Arminda. Now, he did quickly find himself a girl, and it was Arminda. And he subsequently spent the next three weeks with her every evening. And remember, he would have paid her a fee every evening, of course. Now, to women like Arminda, men like John were the equivalent of a big payday for the short term time that they're in the country. And especially in 1984, when there wouldn't have been that many of them, it really would have been a big help to her, money-wise. So if you're one of these women and you can act like you care about what you're doing and you're falling for them, then they'll treat you well. Whereas in buy you things and give you the money and they'll pay you well as well. Um, they won't usually treat you that well normally, um, mentally. But anyway, uh, they give you enough to help you provide for your family. Now, Arminda was obviously very good at her job. By the time that John's three weeks were up, he was in love. And all we could think about was wanting to spend all of his time with Arminda. I mean, after all, she f she thought he was good looking. She was sexually attracted to him. And she was quite obviously in love with him. Wasn't she? I mean, if, if the way you're painting it to me, it's like, like you say, it's a payday, isn't it? But you'd hope that there was that rare occasion where their eyes met and they were truly in love. Exactly. She didn't take his money. It does happen. So, so yeah, we can be skeptical, but we don't know. She might have been truly in love with him. And we know one thing we do know is that John wouldn't accept the fact that he might not see her again. So he came up with the only idea that would work. He would marry her and take her back to the world with him. Del Fominder, this was her dream. She used to move out to move herself out of poverty and go and live in the West in what at the time, and even more so then than now, was a holy grail. Uh, it was living in a rich Western country with freedom, and if she was in love, then it was even better. So they got married. Arminda Ventura became Arminda Ventura Perry. And for the first few years, it was a dream. John had the marriage he wanted. He was married to a young, beautiful woman, and Arminda escaped her life of poverty. She no longer needed to sell her body. She no longer was living in a country that was ruled by a dictator with an iron fist. Now, John was happy. Arminda was happy. They couldn't have kids because there was a 32 year age gap. But they got a cat, and you know it's not quite the same. But needs must sometimes. But anyway, <laughs> after a few years, what seemed like an ideal marriage for John, it quickly turned sour. Arminda started hanging around with men closer to her age, and would often go missing for a day or two, having flings or many relationships with them. And John realized that she had married him to escape her life back in Manila, not because she loved him. Now. I personally have no sympathy for John. He was an overweight, graying, unhappy and lonely 52-year-old who had just spent three weeks paying for a sex worker for company every night for that entire three weeks. And he finished the three weeks thinking that she loved him. And she did that because she was good at her job. She, she had to make him feel wanted, needed and loved. So he'd keep paying her every night. And of course, when he asked her to marry her, she's going to say yes. No one in her situation, wouldn't say yes. But John wasn't happy though. So after seven years of marriage, he wanted a divorce. His friends would later reveal 
that he was often moaning to them that if he did divorce Arminda, it would cost him £15,000, which in today's money is the equivalent of £33,000. So it's not a small amount for most people. And he was just an average working man, so he didn't have a big pot of cash. So that's John and Arminda. Shall we get back to 1991, Rachel, and their neighbours concerned about Arminda? Let's go. Okay, so if you remember, Arminda's neighbours had contacted the police on the 21st of February in 1991 uh, because they were concerned that they, they hadn't seen her for a few weeks. Now, the police dutifully went to the home of John and Arminda and they asked John where she was. And you'd think as a husband, he'd, he'd have a pretty good guess where she were. But John replied to the police telling him that he didn't know where she was and that he hadn't seen her in a couple of weeks. Now, the police officers, they thought that, that was a little odd. Or did the fact that he hadn't reported missing himself. So they asked him why, which he would do. And he simply said that he'd assumed she'd gone off with another man again. And because he, she had done before, so it didn't concern him. Um, because she'd actually done it more than once before. Now, John was 59 now. And he finished them, he finished the conversation by telling them that he planned to live alone going forward. Well, alone with him and his cat. Now, um, it's quite common in the UK anyway, if anyone's listening to this outside of the UK, when someone is missing, that the police have to look around the place that they live to see if they can find anything that would give them a clue as to where the person could be. And this situation was no different. So they asked John, and John said, yeah, sure, why not? So when they got to the kitchen, they noticed a couple of strange things. Firstly, found a bloody, bloody knife on the kitchen table, which by itself, you know, it's not suspicious. You use knives to cut meat. And they also found bloodstains on the floor, which when you combine that with a knife on the table, it was suspicious. But then they also noticed a strange smell in the kitchen and one that they couldn't place, but one that wasn't very pleasant. Now, it was reported that while they were trying to figure out what they were looking at and piece it together, they noticed a family cat, John's beloved cat, and it ran across the room of the kitchen and it stopped beside two plastic bags. And when they looked at those two plastic bags, they contained chopped up pieces of an unidentified meat. Now, it doesn't sound like we've got a happy ending here, Rach. What do you think has happened? It, I mean, it's not shaping up well for John, is it? Not but really. I, I'm, I am struggling with how long he's had that kitchen knife on the table for. I'm just thinking logistics here. How dried up that blood is, because the neighbours have obviously left it a couple of days until they went to the police. Yeah. So what earth is he thinking? Like, he's, well, he's not thinking, is he? But he's just screaming to get caught here. Yeah, well, remember they, they found blood stains on it. So on the floor, not blood on the floor, blood stains. Oh, sorry, so, yeah, blood stains, yeah. It's so just... It's, yeah. But that's not all what they found. Shall, shall we see what else they found in the kitchen, Rach? Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't a good yes, but we have to. <laughs> so the police had decided to look around the kitchen some more, and near the sink, they saw a blood-stained hacksaw and a blood-stained <gasps> screwdriver alongside a medical encyclopedia which was open on a page that had a picture of a human skeleton. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. So I just want to recap this for you. So we've got a missing wife. We've got a husband who wants a divorce, but it's too ex- it's expensive for him. 
We've got a bloodstained knife, hacksaw, and screwdriver. We've got a bag of unidentified meat. We've got bloodstains on the floor and a medical book that happened to be open on a page showing a human skeleton. Now, it seems slightly suspicious, don't you think? Absolutely. And I actually read this script two days ago, but I, it, you reading it out loud, just, yeah, the information is still processing, I guess, because I, I, I can't believe anybody in their right mind would be that fucking stupid. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and that's my exact next line that I put in the script, because I put also possibly, this backs up my opinion that some murderers are simply stone cold stupid. <laughs> yeah. Possibly anyway. Assuming that John's a murderer, you've got to think, like, you've got to be a little bit stupid because he could have said no to the police. No, I don't want you coming in. And they they have had to turn around and go, okay, then. But anyway. I'd, I'd love, I'd love for the, for, to, to have had, like, some sort of body cam footage back in the 90s of these men wandering around the kitchen and something's not right here. I can't <laughs> yeah. put my finger on it, though. Uh, exactly. Now, probably quite wisely, the two police officers that initially looked around the house, they alerted some detectives and they told them that something serious may have happened. So, yeah, yeah like, like, what can I say? I was about to swear then, but I won't swear. <laughs> but, yeah, so, so the detectives, they undertook a more detailed search of the property. And they went on to find two large wine fermenting bins. You know where you make homemade wine? They found them yeah. in the garage. And the bins also contained an unknown meat. Now, some of the meat in the bins had been burned. And other bits had been, other bits had been cooked. And some were still raw. And the main rubbish bin also contained some human organs. Oh so, How much of the was there? Well, well, if it's fermenting, it... it I'm guessing maybe you mix it up with water or something, maybe for the smell. I don't know. The, the, like there is soup. no progress. <laughs> yeah, soup. People soup. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, so it was It was at this point, and, and probably quite wisely, given the evidence was mounting up, John admitted to the police that he had, in fact, killed his wife, but that it was accidental and he didn't mean to. Oh. Uh, so he said, like, he probably thought, well, they probably said, well, what's these... Maybe it was time when they got to the human organs in the bin. It's like, well, yeah, actually, yeah, okay, I did kill her. Uh, so the police, they continued to search the property and they found some body parts in the boot of John's car. Now, the, the police called in the home office pathologist, a Dr. Donald Wade, to try to determine what had happened to Amanda and to try and put her body back together again. So John, he told the police that he hadn't intended to kill his wife. But during one of their frequent arguments in the living room, he had lost control and strangled her. Now, if this was true, it'd most likely be manslaughter, not murder, which maybe that's why he said it, or maybe not, who knows. But when the pathologist Donald Way, he put the body together again, he determined that there were parts missing, including parts of her head. Now, he couldn't determine exactly how she died with certainty, but he was able to tell that she hadn't been strangled. And bone fragments showed that she had received a vicious blow to the back of the head. And also, as well as that, physical evidence would also show that Arminda most likely died in the bathroom, not in the living room, as John has said. So she'd been hit over the back of the head and died in the bathroom, not strangled in the living room. So it's, it's, his story started to unravel. But it's probably the most disturbing part of his story and it's probably hard to believe, given how she died and what we've learned so far, 
was that the pathologist came to the conclusion that he actually fed bits of his wife to the cat. Now, John never gave an explanation to that, so we we'll never know why. But I think that's a little bit more than strange, not only to kill oh, your wife, to chop her up, cook her, and feed her to the cat. So, like, and this is where my mind's going now, like, how did he find that out? Was it because there were bits missing that were like bite size that were found in the cat's intestines, or maybe I, it didn't say it didn't yeah. say, but you'd have to imagine that maybe examine the cat's feces. I, I honestly don't know, oh it didn't say so. Oh my god, it'd be somewhere he wouldn't just have a guess, would he? Oh, yeah, because otherwise, he could maybe he thought John would eat herself, but he definitely thought the, the cat ate it. So, oh who knows. Um, and he actually, he actually came to the conclusion that John had cooked a head in the oven. <gasps> That's probably why bits of it was missing. But yeah, so, so nice, friendly John. Uh, so when, while the police were investigating this, aside from finding out about John complaining that the divorce was costing £15,000, they also interviewed and got a statement from a friend of John's who happened to be a butcher. And he told detectives that John had quizzed him on how best to cut up a carcass of an animal and what the best tools were to do this. So that, that sounds like premeditation. Of course he did. Yeah, this this man could write a book on what not to do with a body and a murder because the, the man has not only spread parts of his ex-wife or wife all over his property, including the boot of his car, his kitchen, his garage, and God knows where else, and the cat's Cats. got bits in him, yeah. right? But then he's just been slagging her off to people and then following up on conversations about how you... He probably said at some stage, how do I cut up a body? Uh, an animal. Yeah, <laughs> like, he wouldn't surprise me. No, exactly. What a crazy guy. Now, unsurprisingly, I don't think I spoiled it for anyone. John would go on to be found guilty and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, I couldn't find out what happened to him, but given he was 59 in 1991, he'd be 89 now. So it's a strong possibility that he's dead. And I'm also guessing his unsuspecting accomplice, the cat, is also dead. Oh. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's had a long life. He might be listening to this go, going, no, I'm still alive. <laughs> but, um, I doubt it. Uh, that, no one ever... What I find... It's sad here. No one ever interviewed any of them in this family. Oh, I couldn't oh. find any anything about it. So possibly she didn't have any family, or possibly it could just be due to the fact that it was so far away and without the internet at the time. And if she came from poverty as well, it'd be almost impossible and very expensive to locate them because they wouldn't be living at a registered address. And if so, it's a strong chance that if they did exist, they may never have found out what happened to her or found out many years later, they might have just thought she stopped contacting them. And I think that's quite sad to think about. It is incredibly sad. And like, I guess that she stayed with John because she felt it was the right thing to do. Albeit she spent time in the company of, of younger men. You can't blame her for that. Like she's, no, she's been no. brought over to a country and saved from poverty, but ultimately she's wanting to live her life. But to then for her family to maybe be absolutely none the wiser and just assuming that she's living her best life in England 
is just heartbreaking, isn't it? It is half heartbreaking. Now, on his retirement in 2010, the pathologist Donald Waits, he would be interviewed for the Daily Post, which is a local newspaper in North Wales, and he listed this case as one of the three most memorable, case, memorable cases he worked on. And aside from telling the paper that John had cooked parts of his wife in the kitchen oven, this is a quote that he made about his involvement in the case. So maybe this will answer some of your questions, Rachel. He said this, he had used drills and saws and sawed up her bones into up into small pieces in the garage. He had sawed her jaw and totally dismantled her. I got everything from the house and I put it in the boot of my car. I was able to rebuild her. So I guess that's why it was in so many different places. He cut her up literally into small pieces. Bite-sized pieces, you might might say. Um, what on earth? I mean, you, you think as well, like, sometimes you don't put it past these mass murderers who get some sort of pleasure like I don't know whether you remember the Dexter TV show but I love Dexter in fact the new series comes out in a couple of weeks yeah but he absolutely thrived didn't he on cutting bodies up and doing what he did right but this guy apparently has not committed a crime before and then he goes on to cut his wife up into tiny pieces like how is he not vomiting and you know I know like able to sleep at night and all the things that you would imagine that would attack your conscience in, in those moments. And he just cracks on cooking her. Like, what a crazy yeah. guy. I guess the only consolation he had is he had his cat for company. Well, yeah, maybe the cat spoke to him and you know, told him <laughs> to do all of it and kept him company, like you say. Yeah. I, I shouldn't laugh, but but you don't know his state of mind. Maybe he thought the cat was no. talking to him. Oh, um, no. So. Do you reckon, do you reckon anyone... Has ever used that in the court of law? The cat told me to do it. Yeah, definitely. I'd say definitely because <laughs> it's quite a common defence, isn't it? Hearing, hearing uh, voices. Now, I don't mean to keep plugging people on this, but there's an excellent YouTube channel channel by a doctor called Doctor Soham Daz. Now, his channel is called A Psych for Sore Minds, and he's actually a, a clinical forensic psychologist, I believe. Sorry for this oh, insistence. Yes. I've got that wrong. Now, he talks about. He anonymizes everything, but he talks about some of his cases and he also examines modern, like popular true crime cases. And he talks about different uh, pathologies and different mental illnesses and stuff. So, so yeah, actually saying that someone talks to you is, is quite uh, common. And he, one of his cases, which he tells about, which is fascinating is about a, uh, a young woman that he treated and, she heard voices telling her uh, things and she actually killed her, her sister's baby <gasps> because of that. And, and she was insane. And a couple of years later, she was cured and she was back out living in, this, in the society because it wasn't her fault. Well, And she never re-offended? Uh, he didn't say so. It was only a few years ago. I don't... Uh, but yeah, it's... Um, that's so nice, it, isn't it? I would say go give him a watch. His video is about 10 minutes long, so it's nice. And it's, Can you just listen to it, or do you have to watch the actual visuals? No, you don't have to watch it, because I first listened to him before. He um, he keeps plugging his YouTube channel. He likes subscribers, so so you can just listen to it, yeah. Oh, nice. I will go and check him out. Uh, so I'd like you for one last time, if it's safe for you to do so, to relax, to close your eyes, and picture the scene. Picture your elderly neighbour 
the one that seems harmless, who seems to dote on his cat, who seems to put you above anything else. Now I'd like you to picture him in his kitchen when he's alone. What's he feeding to the cat? So how was that for you, Rach? Was that, would you expect Don't it? keep a straight face. Um, I definitely wasn't expecting the, the, like the level of gruesomeness on that one. But yeah, very, very sick and twisted case. No, I was too cheap to pay for seats on the flight to London tomorrow. It's only an hour, so I won't be sitting next to my wife. She'll probably be happy about that, actually. Um, so I think I'll actually spend the time listening to Chantel Lady Justice's episode on this to see how she's presented it. I'll probably be crying by the end, realising that we're terrible compared to her, but hopefully we'll match up or at least get close to her standard. I think uh, it's quite it's it's quite a personal thing um, listening to a podcast, isn't it? So I think it is. you could you could probably be quite self critical, but I think that um, her listeners might look for different things, and your listeners might. So it uh, I definitely wouldn't wouldn't compare from that perspective. But I too will have a look at, um, at it, and we'll catch up offline. But our listeners, Rachel, not mine. Our uh, listeners, yes. Sorry, yes. sorry. So as always, if you've enjoyed the show. Or if you haven't, please do give us some feedback. And if you have enjoyed it, please do leave us some feedback uh, wherever you leave your feedback. So thank you, H, and thank you all for listening. Good night and God bless. Mm-hmm.